On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we discuss visceral fat, subcutaneous fat, keto, carnivore, and so much more with Dr. Sean O'Mara. So much of our drive and interest in doing things is about collecting uh, microbes. So for instance, within the realm of athletics, uh, you see different athletes, when somebody does something really good, they'll go up and chest bump each other or high five each other. And we see this also in uh, schoolyards, small little uh, athletic achievements and, and kids will be high fiving each other. And that's really on a primal level, nothing more than human behavior trying to harvest microbes from high performers. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, host of the Keto Camp Podcast. I'm very excited for today's interview with Dr. Sean O'Mara. Dr. Sean came over to my Keto Camp Podcast headquarters, and we recorded an amazing in-person podcast that I was looking forward to for a very long time. I've been following his work for a few years, and I love what he's doing. Uh, We sat down, and we had a life-changing conversation. Wait until you hear his story. He's done so many incredible things in his life, and he saw the writing on the wall when he was 45 years old, very unhealthy, a lot of visceral fat, and he figured out he needed to make a change. He is fascinated about how the body stores fat and the three different types of fat. This is going to be new information to you. It was to me because I knew about two main ones. I didn't know about the third one. So we're going to get into visceral fat, why that is very dangerous, how to test for it. The most accurate way to test that you would pay for, which is an MRI, and then some things you can do at home that are free to know if you have visceral fat that correlates to visceral fat. And then the two types of subcutaneous fat. There's deep subcutaneous fat, which is also bad, correlates to visceral fat, and then uh, more superficial subcutaneous fat, which is good. So we'll get into that. We'll get into the benefits of eating paleo, which is part of his story, and then keto and carnivore. That's usually the transition for a lot of you. Why he eats mostly meat and fermented veggies, and why he has one of the healthiest guts that at least this company that tests the gut microbiome has seen. He'll share that story, why it is important to have diversity in your gut microbiome. And then all about visceral fats, why that leads to heart disease, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, a short lifespan, and why all roads lead to visceral fat. If you could reduce your visceral fat, you are going to prevent disease and feel incredible. Towards the end of the conversation, I asked him, okay, what are the top five most common contributors to visceral fat? 
And then I ask them, what are the five best ways to burn visceral fat? You're going to love the conversation. Dr. Sean Omara talks a lot. Uh, he, he introduced me to a lot of new concepts like visible pulses. Very fascinating. Waiting until you hear about that. How the sun is so healing for nitric oxide. He was actually super sunburned when he came to the studio because he came to Miami to see me. And he spent the day at the beach right before we hit record. If you want to watch, because we're going to go over some photos that he sent to me for the interview. If you want to see those photos and see the entire video interview of today's interview and all interviews in the podcast, that could be found on our YouTube channel. Definitely go watch that after you listen to it because you're probably driving to work or uh, walking your dog or something. So listen to the podcast, but then watch it later when you're at home and you have more time. So youtube.com slash ketocamp is where you can watch today's interview and all interviews, and we show the photos on there. But we'll explain it in a way where if you're listening, you could still understand. So much to discuss. I am excited to bring on Dr. Sean O'Mara. Love that, man. Before I do, I want to get to today's Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This five-star review is from Sheila Plus, titled, Amazing Content and Informative. I wish I could have found Keto Camp and Ben sooner, but better late than never. So far, I've listened to 10 episodes over the last week, and I just can't get enough. Ben does an amazing job interviewing his guests and asking questions that are literally in my mind as I am listening. His genuine nature and spirit really makes his podcast a one of a kind. You can tell how much he really cares about his listeners, and I can't wait to learn more. Keep it up, Ben. The world needs you in Keto Camp. Sheila. Sheila, you're awesome. I know this is an older review that I've read before, and I thought it was important to read it again. If you could follow Sheila on her Instagram, I follow her at lift to lift. You're amazing. I appreciate you. Hopefully, you're hearing me say that right now. And it's been cool to see you transform your life, Sheila. Uh, and I'm very grateful for Rachel Shear for connecting us as well. So thank you, Sheila. You're amazing. Uh, I really appreciate you. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review yet, please do so on whatever platform you're listening from. We're almost, almost at a thousand reviews. And we could get there. If you haven't left a review, please do so. A thousand reviews on Apple Podcasts. But hey, if you don't listen on Apple, whatever platform you're listening from. All right. Before we get into Dr. Sean O'Mara to have a masterclass on visceral fat, the last few episodes, I let you know that I opened up a spot, three spots for my one-on-one coaching program. Seven months, I'm going to teach these three individuals everything I know about health and nutrition that I've learned in the last 15 years. It includes extensive lab work. It's everything that I've learned, and I'm going to teach it to these three individuals. We're going to work together on a one-on-one basis for seven months. And there's an application for you to learn more Uh, not for you to learn more, for you to apply, actually, so I can learn more about you. And the application takes about two minutes to complete. Fill it out. We'll put a link for it in the notes down below, and we will see if it's a good fit. And then we'll hop on a 20-minute call to learn more about each other and see if I could potentially work with you one-on-one. So if this is resonating with you, we're still going through applications, go over to the link down below, fill it out. takes about two minutes, and hopefully we'll talk soon. All right. Dr. Sean O'Mara is the world's leading health and performance optimizing physician, providing individuals with safe and natural strategies to improve the human body and performance. He's got an amazing YouTube channel. 
which everybody go subscribe to, Dr. Sean O'Mara. He's got an amazing Instagram, at Dr. Sean O'Mara, and he's got a clinic and more clinics that will be opened up. His website is drshawnomara.com. Here is Dr. Sean O'Mara. Dr. Sean O'Mara, my friend, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Thanks, Ben. Really good to be here with you. You got a nice glow, a nice tan lying in the Miami sun here in Sunny Isles Beach, not too far from me. And you might be a Florida resident really soon. Doc, I love, love the work you're putting out there. It is so good. You've got scans and data to back up the research. We're going to get into all of that. But you have such a unique history. You have done different paths and avenues throughout your career. And I'd love for you to just summarize the history of Sean and how you got to where you're at today, focusing on visceral fat, metabolic health, and making a dent in metabolic syndrome. Sure. So I'll try to, yeah, sum up my, uh, my uh, background. So my background is different. And uh, I, I don't entirely understand exactly all the roles and the decisions and experiences that I had, but somehow they, they uh, part of the makeup and to uh, explaining how Sean O'Meara got to the position that he is in today, which is uh, trying to optimize where my passion is optimizing human beings from a biological perspective. But I, I grew up in a normal family. My dad was a government worker in Washington, D.C. And I went through public schools and uh, I had to work my way through community college, saving money and uh, eventually did well enough in, in community college to get into Penn State. I studied law enforcement. I was really uh, originally interested in, in law enforcement. Uh, my parents were hit by a drunk driver. My dad was killed. And uh, so we all had to work. You know, we, we all took jobs and uh, it just forced us to grow up overnight. So I was making pretty mature decisions relatively early on in my life. And then I gradually transitioned from uh, law enforcement to law school, where after working as a uniformed police officer, then getting involved in undercover narcotics work. And actually, you know, I was a drug agent when that show, really old show, Miami Vice was coming on. Wow. And uh, so I have that kind of a background. And, and then I, I left law enforcement to uh, study law and I became a criminal prosecutor and I did that for three years. And I couldn't shake my interests along the way with a fascination of science and particularly medicine. I was very interested as a child in medicine, but I just kind of dismissed it. I, I wasn't, you know, uh, particularly good at science or grades, but um, at that point in my life, I was mature and I was hungry. So I decided that I wanted to go back to college. I had to take all my sciences that I avoided as a college student. And uh, after I'd practiced law for a while, I had to go back to take these, you know, post-baccalaureate classes in biology and physics and organic chemistry. And so I, I took a job working as a night watchman. I put on a polyester uniform after being a police officer and a, a prosecuting attorney. And I wore this polyester uniform at nighttime and I sat and I studied. And all night long, I really wanted to go to medical school and I did well enough my grades and uh, studying for the MCAT to get into medical school. So I was determined. I really saw what I wanted to do and I pursued uh, medicine. I got accepted to medical school and then I got a scholarship to pay for medical school through the U.S. Army. And that set me on a course of work, you know, in a, in a military position that uh, really allowed me to have entree 
into uh, emergency medicine. And then eventually I was caring for, I, I became the outstanding physician of the year for the army in 2004. And, you know, I got selected to provide care for President Clinton and Vice President Cheney and secretaries of state Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. So lots of experience doing senior executive service for the, uh, uh, for our country, our leadership. And uh, so I, I finished my obligation in the military. I set up a concierge medical company because I was very intrigued. Telemedicine was coming out that time. I was intrigued about the capacity for using hospital-grade medical gear uh, outside the hospital in the setting of people's homes. So that, you know, I've, I thought big. Other people were just kind of doing telemedicine through a camera. And I thought, well, what if you had all the equipment, if you could afford it? So I worked with a few, about five other physicians, and we designed these ICUs in people's homes and even many hospitals. And uh, it was very extravagant. But in caring for those ultra wealthy people, I realized that they were at a disadvantage. They were very into their lifestyle, and I couldn't get them interested, despite the fact I was in using that medical gear to monitor them and kind of pre, it was all pre placed. And I thought, well, Maybe we could get more value out of it and preventing a heart attack or stroke. But there really wasn't much interest in that. It was crazy. They wanted uh, a system in place when they had a stroke to respond, but nothing before to try to prevent that. And I I found that fascinating. So ultimately, I abandoned my interest in in concierge medicine, medical practice. I'd met a a young patient that was um, very healthy. And I had at that point started to put on weight. I was about in midlife, 45, 48, I was becoming uh, heavy and I couldn't, I couldn't stop what was happening in my body. And this young guy told me about at the time it was called the paleo diet. So uh, I read about it. It just clicked in my, you know, it's like you see something, it just made a lot of sense and never heard about it. It seemed opposite of what we were taught in medical school. So I abandoned carbohydrates and, um, at the time, I was not only overweight, but I had a lot of medical conditions. But my encouragement, my desire to do the paleo diet at that time was really just to, to lose weight and try to get rid of this gut that was developing within me. And so I abandoned my chocolate milk that I was, uh, skim milk that I was going around drinking, uh, carrying it around. And uh, I started- You were carrying that around? <laughs> I was. I kept this, I thought I was healthy. I had this gallon of- milk in a plastic container and shake up the chocolate <laughs> milk. It was skim milk. It was awful. I mean, can you imagine today? And, but once I went paleo, cut out carbohydrates, uh, not only did I lose weight, but I had been suffering uh, restless leg syndrome, which is where you kick your legs all, all night long. I uh, would keep my poor wife uh, awake because I was constantly kicking. I had obstructive sleep apnea. I was snoring all night long and I'd stop breathing and start gasping for breath and scare her half to death. She used to think I was choking on blankets, would rip them away from my, around my neck and things. And uh, I had eczema bleeding uh, all over my, my sheets. I had esophageal reflux. So uh, I was on lots of different medications to try to suppress the, the terrible heartburn. I had precancerous lesions and um, a condition called Barrett's esophagus. And I would have to literally be scoped every single three months in my life to be biopsied to, to try to catch the malignancy that was, I was forecasted that I would be getting from Barrett's esophagus. And uh, 
you know, that was the treatment plan. Just wait for the cancer. And, you know, I, I, you know, the surprising thing as a physician, I went along with this. And I also had erectile dysfunction. I had an enlarged prostate. I was waking up four or five times a night to, to pee. When I peed during the day, it would dribble out of me. There was no real stream anymore. No sense of, uh, you know, evacuation of my bladder. And I had uh, carotid arteries that were, were uh, obstructed and, and uh, I was developing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And so lots of medical conditions. And here I am going paleo. And what I noticed over the, the year in uh, going on this uh, low carb, eliminating carbohydrates and eliminating all processed foods was all my medical conditions either went uh, completely away or substantially better. And uh, I've shared this story before, and you'd think a lot of people would be very pleased with the fact that that happened. But what I saw as a physician was I'd been ripped off and I had been deceived into believing that my conventional training in medical school uh, was the answer to care for people. And, and the longer I followed my conventional training, what I learned in medical school and uh, accepted the conventional training that, treatment that was provided to me, the worse off I became. And then when I changed my lifestyle and my diet, all these medical problems went away. And honestly, I was furious. I felt like I had been deceived and I had been corrupted into a, a system that I realized was just uh, propagating disease to make money. And so I was compelled at that time because I felt like I was in a matrix or something. It was like a whole completely different sphere of uh, insight that suddenly I was teleported into. And I felt uh, obligated to become a researcher, to ask the question, to dare to ask the question, how could lifestyle have this much of a positive impact on disease? And why isn't this information being told out there? So uh, I moved my family to uh, Minneapolis, joined a research practice and ended up getting a, uh, a grant. We applied for funding from the National Science Foundation for the purposes of trying to purpose um, and identifying strategies to reverse chronic disease for our country, which is a huge problem. It's uh, chronic disease, in fact, is the largest problem that humanity faces. So I was excited to try to develop strategies to solve the largest problem. And I say it's the largest problem. And if you're listening, I, I think it's, it's worth being aware about. You should, you should think about problems. If while we're on, uh, on, on the planet, we should be solving problems. And uh, I find chronic disease to be the biggest because nothing, no other problem do we spend more money on. No other part of the, it's the largest part of our economy. Uh, it's way larger than energy or defense or, uh, internet or uh, banking or finances. Uh, it is the largest part of our economy and is the largest part of uh, the healthcare sector and chronic disease. Uh, nothing else uh, impairs worker productivity more, employee productivity more. Nothing impairs the quality of lives of humans more than chronic disease. And uh, nothing kills more people than chronic disease. And yet, if you're listening, who's talking about this problem? Nobody. And so I think it's partly it's this enormous problem that's kept in the background. People aren't um, told about and don't think about. And so when I started to research this, um, I became even more interested in, in this, the enormity of the problem. 
And then we developed uh, biomarkers to take a look at if we're going to eradicate chronic disease, then we should, we should be asking the question, what is relevant to chronic disease? What should we be taking a look at? So what we found based on <clears throat> our seven years of research for the Na National Science Foundation was <clears throat> first a biomarker called visceral fat. And it's the earliest expression of chronic disease that occurs in the human body. So you should be wondering what, what is the first expression of disease in the body and when does it start? And the answer is visceral fat and it begins in your childhood. So we would scan teenagers, adolescents, and, and including my own children. I was scanning them from the funding for the National Science Foundation. And uh, as early as four years of age, we would see visceral fat present in small children. And the interesting thing is to the extent that they, you know, consume a carbohydrate rich diet, especially processed foods, we would see more of this visceral fat inside of them. And visceral fat led us to other biomarkers, fat around the, the heart, organ fat, fat with, uh, within the organs, and then fat being deposited uh, within the uh, musculature of uh, individuals and then atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, clogged arteries. So as we study visceral fat, we paid attention to um, what caused it and what made it worse and what made it better. And we developed different strategies to try to impact it. And so that really led me up to where I am today. I became this passionate uh, researcher, uh, purposing to try to do the best I can to, to help people optimize their health and to eradicate chronic disease. And the, the last point I'll, I will share about my, my research here at the beginning is the fact that chronic disease went away when you got rid of visceral fat was not too much of a surprise. What really shocked me was how much human performance improved. Mm. So people looked better, and they performed so much better across the board in everything that we measured or anything that they were involved in. They were reported, they, they became better at playing tennis, better at playing chess, better at whatever work they did professionally, better at sports, everything improved. And so the fact that you can increase the performance in humans by eradicating disease gives me great hope that if we can leverage corporate America employers to become aware of the fact that if they're able to get their employees more healthy, there will be an exploitable advantage to them where their employees will literally become better employees for them, work better, increase productivity. And the fact that it also reduces healthcare costs that a lot of times are borne by worn by very large corporations of a thousand employees or more. So uh, if you're listening today and you run a large self-insured company, I am looking for self-insured companies to work with to help educate them about this very significant advantage of uh, getting your employees more, more healthy. But really the same advantage applies to everybody. I think the message of uh, optimizing health is a very attractive one and so relevant to every human that's, that may be listening to this podcast. Yeah, what a, what a story, what a, what a start. So for those watching on YouTube, we're, in a minute here, we're going to show some, some photos to really take a deep dive into visceral fat and distinguish that between subcutaneous fat 
And then we'll get into how to optimize and reduce the visceral fat so you're able to reverse these conditions or prevent them even better. So doc, just a couple of follow-up questions on what you shared and then we'll take a deep dive into visceral fat. Paleo diet is what you discovered. You mentioned that you did no carb paleo diet. So you did a different variation of it because from my understanding, paleo diet still involves carbs, just no processed carbs. So how did you do it? Yeah, boy, what a great question. So what happened, Ben, was uh, I went paleo and it was really, I would call it low carb at that time. But so, not keto, not low enough not to keto. be keto. Okay. I later went keto and uh, there there was this, you know, several step process in my kind of an evolution in my dietary strategies where I reduced carbohydrates, but I, I still was uh, eating fruit and, you know, vegetables and, and a higher level of carbohydrates than, than I do today. And then I found out about keto, keto came on and it, and I, I was so good on paleo that I thought, well, keto, I don't know. I, I, I just didn't want to leave my old friend paleo because I had <laughs> all my disease processes, processes went away, but uh, it made sense, you know, that, you know, keto uh, really had an appeal to me originally. And uh, so I decided to adopt uh, a more of a ketogenic lifestyle. Uh, I cut out carbohydrates even more, uh, reduced my, probably my carbohydrate uh, intake to, you know, certainly less than 50 grams a day and, and probably more closer to 25. And I had substantial improvement. I mean, I just got better. And so then uh, after being keto for about three or four years, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Nick Zahansky, called me up and was talking to me about going carnivore and going zero carb. When was this? What year? Uh, this was 2000 and uh, about 2009. So 2009. I, oh, so wait, sorry, not 2009. Sorry, 2000. This was uh, five years ago. So it was 2019. 18, 19. Yeah, okay, yeah, God, that makes more sense. Because, sorry. Yeah, that yeah. would have been way ahead of the carnivore <laughs> yeah. code. Yeah, I was an OG in carnivore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it definitely was. It That's was still right pretty before. early on. I mean, now it's a lot more popular, but even yeah. five years ago, it's still pretty early on. Yeah, it, early was, on. it was right before it deployed. Nick told, told me about it. And I, I just, I remember telling Nick, no, no, you gotta, you gotta have those nutrients and plants, man. You just all meat. No, that doesn't seem right. It just, it, it didn't seem right to me. But what happened was I bumped into Nick at Whole Foods. So he was calling me up and talking to me about this. Then I saw him at Whole Foods. Holy cow. Did he improve his appearance? And in my hair stain, I'm like, I'm all, <laughs> dude, I'm in. Look at you. <laughs> so I decided to give it a try. I figured I could always add back vegetables. And to this day, I still tell people, you know, when I encourage them to, to go to give zero carb a try, um, you can always return if you want in the future. It's not like this is set in stone. So I, um, I went zero carb carnivore, uh, back in right around 2018, 2019. And, uh, I stayed carnivore during my uh, deployment in the military to the Middle East and that was a little tricky, you know, because, uh, you know, the military likes to, you know, they would portion us out and we wouldn't get so much meat. And I had to figure out ways to go sneak in and go get more meat. So, you know, I could keep my uh, intake of uh, adequate protein in. And uh, I just steadily got better, significantly better uh, going on carnivore. So a few times I would try to add back uh, some carbohydrates uh, in, through vegetables, uh, complex carbs. And uh, every time I did, Ben, I would experience uh, joint pain, uh, back pain, 
I would get plantar fasciitis was a big, seemed to be a low threshold for developing plantar fasciitis when I introduced these uh, vegetables and plants back in. So I basically, I after doing about uh, four or five times and having confirmation each time, I decided uh, that I was probably going to be carnivore for life, zero carb. And uh, all along, I had been eating fermented foods. Uh, I learned about fermented foods <clears throat> when I went paleo. So I do long ferments where I ferment my own vegetables and, and any ferment, ferments that I buy, I make sure that they're adequately fermented to eliminate the carbohydrates. And I maintained my consumption and use of ferment. So I differ than a lot of carnivore physicians who are purists in this area where they are more strictly animal products only and don't eat any vegetables fermented or not. I do. And my basis for doing so is because one, the carbohydrates have been re reduced or eliminated completely to the extent that fermentation has eliminated them and based on, you know, to the extent of the conditions of fermentation. So if it's a short fermentation, you may have residual carbohydrates, but a longer fermentation will eliminate that. And Are you more concerned about the carbs or the anti-nutrients in them? You know, I would say both. That's a great question. I've never had that question posed to me, but I've asked it of myself and uh, I really don't know. You know, from my own experience, I think they're both bad players. I really do. I think based on my own anecdotal experience and then as for within myself and then with my clients that I work with, uh, patients that I uh, get them off of carbohydrates and get them off plants and have them just uh, yeah, eating fermented vegetables, fermented fruit and uh, vegetables. I have not been able to confidently say which of the two is more problematic. Is there a postprandial glucose response from a ferment, fermented carbs? Is that what your problem? You know, is not really. It? If it's adequately fermented, right? You so see, what, what's the issue with the carbs? That what would be the well I, besides the anti nutrients? What yeah, there there aren't from my perspective. If they they're adopting uh, you know fermented uh, sources of plants and and uh, fruit. I'm speaking from the experience of people that um, who may be eating vegetables, maybe they're eating more of a, a keto diet. And what is causing those people that are maybe eating uh, plants and fruit, what is the greater harm to their body? Is it the carbohydrates, just like you say, or is it the, uh, the lectins and the anti-nutrients in it? You know, what's exciting is I just think that we're, you know, in the early stage of studying these things. And I don't think there's uh, adequate funding. There's not a lot of importance attached to those kind of questions. But the more those questions are asked and the more people want to know, uh, you, the voting population out there, can, you know, through Congress and your elected uh, leadership, ask for more studies through, you know, NIH and the government. Most, so much of the funding uh, for science comes from the U.S. government. And so it all got started with me from funding from the National Science Foundation. And I think we need to have more studies to get at that. But I still don't know if carbohydrates or anti-nutrients are a bigger problem. Uh, I do believe, and I've seen anecdotally, that when they are both eliminated from uh, the diets of people, they, they optimize. And when they're reintroduced, 
they typically cause a problem. And, you know, there are people that are able to ostensibly report that they have not had any problems. And currently there's a, a movement within the carnivore community to reintroduce fruit and uh, honey back in, in yeah. many cases. And uh, it seems like a, a segment, a fairly large number of people report that they're able to do that without any uh, noticeable consequence. I, I wonder, I always say, well, how do you know what are you measuring? And uh, a lot of them seem to be going on feeling that they feel better, uh, which is always a scary thing because I think we have this proclivity or a tendency to to want to feel good. And so I think that belies a lot of the attraction and distraction where people end up going into gambling, substance abuse, maybe pornography. And these these might be you know criticized some people might be saying it's not really fair to talk about, you know, those, those vices in the context of fruit, but, you know, the same kind of, a of attraction, the allurement of these pleasurable kind of activities. And you got to admit that most of those kind of vices that if we are honest enough to identify them as vices, most of them are, are experienced in the lives of people as attraction. So allurement. <clears throat> and so I do think that, uh, things that taste good, unfortunately, can be alluring to people. And I like to educate my clients about the sense of taste being better utilized for the purposes of avoiding toxins and things that might be problematic, something that might be, for instance, spoiled. I think sugar or something sweet might have an advantage if we have no access to meat. Uh, and healthy, uh, healthy, healthy meat, then uh, something sweet that is growing tends to be, if they're correct, there has not been anything sweet tasting that grows uh, that has a toxin that will kill you immediately. But the, uh, the, the thing about toxins are the, the dose makes the toxin, how much uh, the the amount of the toxin that you encounter uh, really uh, establishes whether it's going to be harmful to you or not. So an interesting thought that I've, I've had recently um, kind of growing within me is that maybe plants serve a purpose uh, as kind of an hormetic, a stress hormetic. That, That's uh, the side I'm on right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I think that might be the case uh, that we should be using plants including fruit, uh, probably less the case with fruit because I think there appears to be less less of the uh, toxins and plant defenses within fruit than there are in vegetables. Uh, but I think plants do have uh, some benefit. Clearly, they have some benefit. The, the analysis goes, are the risk-benefit analysis uh, collectively worth a use of an, an ingestion of plants and vegetables and uh, if so, then how frequently? And mm-hmm. I think that that is, is yeah. elusive, and a, probably the answer to that is it's going to be different for every individual. Yeah, and for sure. it's going to be probably established based on the microbiome, the collection of microbes that reside within your gastrointestinal tract and even on your body. These microbes, and probably not us, are making the decisions about whether we're going to get a healthy response to uh, a dietary strategy that changes 
And so the microbiome is, is hugely important to me. And I think it's, it's a topic that you and I could just have a podcast and yeah, do it every actually, single day. Actually, I, I want to <laughs> briefly get into that. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part? This may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasia loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally, and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal, and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best-tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy-tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. Well, from the studies out there on the gut microbiome, when we compile them, diversity is the key, right? At least that's what I have found. But then I have interviewed like Dr. Terry Walls, and she now kind of questions if diversity is the key. But I still believe the more diverse that gut microbiome, the healthier we're going to be based off of what I've seen. I want to hear your thoughts on that, number one. And then the follow-up on that, if somebody is carnivore, strict carnivore for 20 years, 30 years, wouldn't it make sense that they would lose the diversity if they're eating the same five or 10 foods and not changing their foods around? Wouldn't it decrease the diversity in their gut? Yeah. So uh, the first question, I generally think that a healthy microbiome is a diverse one. And uh, I think the reason for that is uh, 
because if you study human behavior, so much of our drive and interest in doing things is about collecting uh, microbes. So for instance, within the realm of athletics, uh, you see different athletes, when somebody does something really good, they'll go up and chest bump each other or high five each other. And we see this also in uh, schoolyards, small little uh, athletic achievements and, and kids will be high-fiving each other. And that's really on a primal level, nothing more than human behavior trying to harvest microbes from high performers. Interesting. So, that's in, I never thought about that. That is fascinating. Yeah. So I've, you know, I've watched humans and how they behave and it's a universal action that's present around the globe. It's very interesting for excellence. And then the opposite is somebody misses a layup, something, you know, uh, cringy, you move away and don't, don't want them. And we also see this in shaking hands and friendly uh, behavior. Yeah. My dog then, was licking you earlier today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this one smells good. I want some of their, their microbes. And then if you watch like uh, in stadiums, very interesting, the people that are watching their team, they're these excellent players, high performers, they reaching their hands out just to touch them. They want right. to grit their, yeah. their microbes. So um, watching this human behavior, we are on this mission, whether we're uh, aware of it on a conscious level, to try to collect as many beneficial microbes as possible. So I think the premise is uh, from the outset that we want a healthy diversity, that we don't want to just have a collection of microbes that are in one particular area and, and uh, isolated and not well-developed. So, uh, I, however, it still remains to be seen the different speciations of uh, microbes. We're doing uh, uh, very early work in this. And I recently, I've had a few uh, analysis of my own um, microbiome, gastrointestinal microbiome. and With which labs did you do? Uh, I used... Um, American Gut Project, which uh, unfortunately I think is still down. They were early on a big player and you can Google them, but it seems like since COVID, they kind of diverted and, and are not really doing microbiome analysis. So there's another company called Tend Health, T-E-N-D, Space Health. I don't have any financial interest in them, but I like them because they do microbiome analysis, but they don't sell supplements. So they're there's a lot of uh, uh, microbiome analysis out there, and then they try to sell you um, by our supplements. Yeah, this will so, help increase your diversity. Yeah, Take this, exactly. eat, eat the, and then eat these foods. They so Tend Health just does the analysis, but they're not selling. Uh, they sell the analysis, and I don't fault them because I think it's it's a good service. Not that you can't can't do things for free. So when I I was a little behind, I got I bought five kids from my wife and my uh, children and uh, a few clients and uh, I was, I had some problems with my registration on my computer to get it connected. So my wife's and daughter's report came back and it was very interesting to go through. And then a couple of weeks later, mine came back and, and I got a message from the CEO was asking me if I would have a conversation with their chief scientific officer, their CSO. Did he give you any reference? Very interested in my results. So it turns out- did they out, tell you why in that email? What were you yeah, thinking? Well, I ended up having a conversation with them and I had one of the healthiest microbiomes that, that they've ever wow. seen. So uh, it was affirming. I mean, it's, it's nice when you are uh, passionate about the microbiome and you're trying yourself very hard 
uh, to optimize your microbiome and share the advantages of an optimized microbiome with your clients, uh, it's nice to get that kind of uh, objective feedback that you have done well. And so, How many years into carnivore and, and uh, with the fermented foods did you take this test? Well, I've been doing fermented foods since 2009, 2010. Okay. And so carnivore about 2018, 2019, uh, the whole time fermented foods. And so I just noticed a steady improvement in my own health. And I like to tell people, you know, despite the fact that you may be growing older and the very common observation uh, that is out there that as you grow older, you grow worse, you become more diseased and less capable. I think the truth is, and I stand behind it and I like to promote this, that it is only the case because chronic disease is around and we have, we've lost our insights ancestrally how we should be living and so the older people tend to be uh, less revered and relative to the, how they were in the past. Uh, monarchy, if you've never thought about this, monarchy got its start from the fact they were the best appearing and best performing of our species. Mm. And so we entrusted to them positions of uh, extreme importance uh, because these men and women lived extraordinarily disciplined lives. Now today, the monarchy, I, I would love to have a conversation with King Charles and Prince William about this. Um, I think they have completely lost sight of the fact that they should really be uh, incredibly disciplined, hardworking human beings that on a daily basis throughout the day are making informed decisions to optimize their health. But that's how our ancestors did. They realized that the, the more uh, closer they came to choosing and making decisions throughout the day, the better performing they were. And they did it not to be selfish. They did it because of their role in a clan. They knew if they were the best performer and they could get better, they were going to be more successful in catching a uh, bison or a megafauna to share with their tribe. So it was this... Uh, selfless desire to to lead well, um, and unfortunately, right with the fallacy of uh, humanity and starting to plant things and and uh, accumulate food and abundance and and start um, accumulating money, um, there was a decline in health and uh, across the board. I think uh, we've lost sight of our our excellence to want to lead well. And so I'd like to see, and I'm going to remain optimistic that for our species, that as we become more optimally healthy, I think we'll see a resurgence or a return to just excellence and leadership. I would like to see basically leaders of governments and, and uh, the modern day versions of clans and tribes become um, committed to and uh, passionate about optimizing their health to be better examples for their, their people and to inspire them that, hey, you know, when I got healthy and really became, you know, optimally healthy, I performed better and I served better. And to make that attraction, the notion of creating role models for uh, health, I think, is something that we should be uh, pursuing as a species. Yeah, well said. I, I, I love that view. And yeah, I kind of saw that, and this is not a political statement I'm going to share here, but I kind of saw that with uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. He made a post about doing push-ups, and he's, of course, running for the president. 
I like to see that, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, whatever it is, I'd like to see a candidate focus on health and talk about the value of that. To your point, that is very admirable. Are you ready to talk about visceral fat and take a deep dive with me? Okay. Yeah. We, we have some yeah, photos sure. here. So let's see, I'm going to pull it up on my phone, but we're going to show it on YouTube. If you're listening on the podcast, Dr. Sean is going to explain it in a way where you understand it, but I do recommend you go on youtube.com uh, slash keto camp and watch it. So where do you want me to start here? Which one should we start with? Um, probably start with the, there's a figure uh, where it shows a here, level of a scan. This image uh, shows a, right there. And you've done over 6,000 scans. Yes. Oh, yeah. For the National Science Foundation, we scanned over 6,000. And I've lost wow. track now since the years of that. But that that image is helpful for the audience to know where is visceral fat. And it also uh, shows in color form, the difference between visceral fat and subcutaneous fat. So in this particular image that, that you'll be able to take a look at, you can see that we take a slice typically through um, what's called an axial image or through the axis of somebody's abdomen. And it's really a series of slices. So it kind of almost looks like a pizza that when it's uh, processed by um, imagery, uh, through an MRI, which uses magnetic fields and doesn't use radiation. And uh, on an MRI, fat shows up as white. So you're able to see uh, fat within the human body and organs and tissue and uh, bones show up as dark. So uh, it's helpful to be able to d differentiate between uh, the tissues. And visceral and subcutane subcutaneous are both white. Yes. Yeah, so scan. both of them are white. Okay. And uh, so the way to tell uh, the difference um, is really the location of it. So mm -hmm. subcutaneous gives you a big hint. Sub um, below cutaneous skin. So right below the skin is this fat depot that is called subcutaneous fat. Oh, there it goes. And, it's, it's uh, the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and so subcutaneous fat is really a completely different animal to visceral fat. But as it turns out, and this is the exciting thing is, while well, I've been aware of subcutaneous fat for a long period of time, I didn't realize there's actually two types of subcutaneous fat. And so on a MRI, looking at uh, the uh, abdominal image, there is uh, two components to subcutaneous fat. One is superficial subcutaneous fat, and the other one is deep subcutaneous fat. And very interesting, I mean, just... I'm just fascinated that the two are separated by a membrane called scarpa fascia. And you can see this black line that goes through the subcutaneous fat depot collectively and everything that is uh, superficial, you know, just below the skin to that black line is the superficial subcutaneous fat. And the, uh, the deeper part of it, uh, of that black line is deep subcutaneous fat. And why, why that is important, not only, I mean, nature decides to distinguish it with this membrane between the two that for years I kind of ignored is the fact that deep subcutaneous fat releases inflammatory molecules very similar to visceral fat. Mm. And so it is inflammatory in nature and it's aligned with chronic disease, a higher amount of cardiovascular disease. So big players like heart attacks and strokes that are responsible for uh, killing people and causing serious mor morbidity and impairing quality of life. But it's sister compartment sub superficial subcutaneous fat, which is very close, but to it, approximately speaking, but separated by this membrane. 
uh, superficial subcutaneous fat actually does not secrete these inflammatory molecules. And then it secretes a very interesting molecule called adiponectin. Mm. Adiponectin is something that a lot of it's included in a lot of labs now, and I'm glad to see it. But adiponectin, uh, to the extent that it is uh, present and measurable, the more you have of it, the lower uh, your risk for cardiovascular disease. So basically, I like to say subcutaneous fat and deep subcutaneous fat, even though they're buttressed up against each other, are completely different. It's like bricks and clouds. And yet this physician, MD, you know, and I've been studying fat for a long time. I only learned about this really this past year. And, you know, why this, you know, distinction is kept from us in medical school is elusive and problematic. I think, you know, it, it, we really should be focusing in on having some of this superficial subcutaneous fat and uh, having none, little to no deep subcutaneous fat because it's just like visceral fat. And so, you got bodybuilders that are out there trying to get rid of their superficial, all their subcutaneous fat to look more cut. So I'm critical of bodybuilders for that. I, th I think it's a legitimate sport, but, you know, I would say, you know, for those listening in the audience, you, you don't want to have body fat down that low because you're losing out on the advantage of uh, adiponectin and superficial subcutaneous fat, which is also aligned with a lower amount of uh, mortality and, and uh, better quality of life. So there's this protective benefit to superficial subcutaneous fat. So that would explain, by the way, why bodybuilders live a shorter life than the average person. Yes, I think that is very much the case. And uh, so I'm interested in body dysmorphia and I am critical of bodybuilding from that standpoint. I think there is a dysmorphic quality to um, bodybuilding where you have too much muscle, too little fat. And then there's um, a continuum of that that is probably worth mentioning at the same time, although this people probably won't like thinking about it, is anorexia. So where you have too little fat and too little muscle, uh, you just have no tissue. And then you have morbid obesity where people who have too much fat and probably not enough muscle. And so what I like to, to say you know, to my clients is you probably want to be more like a Tarzan and Jane of old back in the days. I'm 60 years old. Uh, when I was a young kid, Tarzan looked very different back then than he does today. Tarzan today has a six pack. Tarzan of the day gone by when I was, when Sean, yeah, I got to look this young. up. I got to go. Yeah, keep going. I'm Johnny Weissmuller was, uh, was Tarzan for a long time. He had a layer of subcutaneous fat on his, uh, his abdomen. He did not have a six pack. So Tarzan and Jane just uh, look different than they do today. So there's this promotional shift now. to what looks good or, you know, culturally, and we think it's a six pack. And, uh, you know, for you to have a six pack, you, you gotta be devoid of, uh, uh, of your superficial subcutaneous fat depot, which is creating your adiponectin. And I'll, I'll make a pitch that not only do you lose your adiponectin, but, uh, I think it also says I got a thin layer of extra reserve. You know, I'm not living on the edge where I, you know, a little bit away from starting to have to break down my muscle if I, if I don't get right. um, any, uh, any intake. So um, I think there was some attraction to having 
a small amount, a little excess, like, hey, I'm I'm good at honey. And you can see it because I got a little bit on my admin. And if you're going to wear fat on your body and have it, then you probably want just a thin layer uh, of superficial fat. <clears throat> and you definitely don't want to have deep subcutaneous fat. And you definitely don't want to have uh, visceral fat. And interesting, I'll, I'll share with you is uh, the deep subcutaneous fat tends to be concentrated in one area of the body. And that is uh, posteriorly in your back uh, in a unique uh, area called your love handles. <laughs> so love handles are predominantly uh, in the realm of typically about 80 to 90% deep subcutaneous fat. Mm. So why don't they call them love handles if people hate them? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting is uh, men have a higher degree of deep subcutaneous fat in their love handles and women less so. So what's interesting is I think us males in our species are more troubled over biologically. We react more viscerally to love handles than women do. If we're walking behind a woman and she has uh, love handles on the beach, we're not as bothered about it as some dude in front of us with love handles. And then we think to ourselves, I don't want to be like that. I don't want love handles. And so when I was researching deep subcutaneous fat, uh, Ben, I actually saw a, a number of uh, posts, and I, I hope you, you go on the uh, Google and you take a look at this. Uh, there were a lot of ads that kept popping up from plastic surgeons and guess oh, who were there yeah. chopping these things off of? Guys. Yeah, it wasn't right. the women that was getting removed. It was guys. And so we males don't want to have these love handles, but they are very much aligned with causing inflammation and they correspond to the amount of visceral fat you have. So in that image, the visceral fat is in the center part of the, uh, the abdomen and uh, the extent to which you have visceral fat, you are going to have deep sub subcutaneous fat. The two are you know, uh, inextricably connected. And I will say that the process that causes deposition of visceral fat ends up causing development and deposition of deep subcutaneous fat. Mm. So there's a lot of complexity into how the body decides and reacts to the uh, lifestyle of a particular species in laying down this fat. But for sure, you don't want to have visceral fat and you don't want to have deep subcutaneous fat. So that's an easy task to do at home. If you don't go get a scan, you probably should get a scan. But if you're at home and you reach behind and you have love handles, it yeah. corresponds, correlates to having visceral yeah, fat. Yeah, it's a poor man's and MRI, I like to say. It's a poor say. man's MRI. The MRI, are you referring to a DEXA scan? Is that sufficient or is it something else that you recommend? Yeah, so a DEXA scan is even a, a more affordable way uh, relative to an MRI. And DEXA scan will give you a fairly accurate quantification of visceral fat. But the sad thing about a DEXA scan is maybe I could pull up uh, one more image and yep. take a look at um, an MRI with a lot of white inside. So when you do a, um, so this MRI, is a lot of, this is a lot of visceral fat is. I'm looking at right here. So I, you know, real quick people should, you want to see when it comes to an abdomen, a lot of dark stuff, you want to see a lot of muscle and you don't want to see a lot of white. So when you see a lot of white in there, it's visceral fat. And the reason why I pulled out that image is because that gentleman uh, was filled with visceral fat. And we showed him images of your abdomen, what you want to look like, very low visceral fat, lots of muscle inside. And we showed him bad images with a lot of visceral fat, which shows up as a lot of white inside with very little uh, dark muscles. 
And, you know, the more visceral fat you have and the longer you have it, the smaller your muscles become. You start developing sarcopenia. So in that particular case, that individual, when we pulled up his scan, actually uh, passed out. He was standing up and he literally went unconscious, fell down, uh, hit the ground. I, it was super scary, that, but he was so bothered by his own MRI image showing wow. the amount of visceral fat inside of him. So I tell that story because nobody's gonna pass out from their DEXA scan. Nobody passes out from their laboratory numbers. The capacity for a human being to be impacted by numerical data is very, very minimal. We are creatures with senses. And to the extent that we process information through uh, visually, through touch, through taste, through smell, through hearing all the senses, the information becomes more meaningful and impactful. So if you're listening today and you're trying to understand uh, and more importantly, change your life with regard to visceral fat and deep subcutaneous fat and another fat, we'll we'll hopefully talk about muscle fat, Uh, then you want to have that engagement through your senses. You want to see that. So I like to say, you know, to stare at the enemy inside, you know, it's better to look at the enemy directly uh, that you're confronted by than to get information through numeric quantification. So the DEXA scan will give you an accurate number, but the number is not going to really help you as much um, make the necessary changes to to optimize your health. And so if you're going to track um, optimization, actually becoming more healthy, and you're thinking about maybe changing a dietary strategy, like maybe you want to add back in fruit or vegetables or honey or in in the case of uh, what I recently uh, did up a, um, a real on uh, lactose milk mm, even um, raw milk too yeah yep. you can track the impact of these dietary strategies just like we did for our studies with the National Science Foundation and you could see what sort of impact it has so some people will be able to tolerate some of these things again based on their microbiome Others will not, and they'll start quickly accumulating visceral fat. And for those people, you know, they they are at an advantage for having gotten the MRI scan to have that kind of an insight rather than waiting for the long-term effect where maybe you start gaining a lot of weight and, and you, you, you can't wear your pants anymore and things like that. We could see the accumulation of visceral fat literally in just two or three days on an MRI scan. Really? Where so people would add in carbohydrates, rice, or two know, or three or days, you yeah. can see it. So, wh- where is my audience going? How are they googling this to find an MRI scan? What, what's the term they're searching for? Yeah. So, one thing I tell them to do is, uh, you know, follow me on YouTube because I have some videos. Um, got about some amazing, to, amazing video. Everybody, yeah. follow Doctor Sean on. Well, We're thank put you. Put that man. link down below. But it's really great. I had fun watching all your videos, preparing <laughs> for today. It's like you got the graphics. You break it down. It's really well done. Yeah, I'm a little zany. I mean, I, I tend to be in my stuff. I'm I'm a little jazz when I do it, uh, but I try to keep it entertaining and engaging, but I go through videos, how to read your visceral fat so you can study it. But uh, to your question, Ben, you you need to get a physician order to get an MRI. So uh, I direct people to go back to their primary care doctor to ask them to sign an order and they won't uh, do it unless you pay out of pocket. So don't expect insurance to to pay for this. Uh, insurance company will never pay for an MRI. They don't like to pay for MRIs if you even even if you need surgery. 
uh, but they're certainly not going to be paying for MRIs for preventive maintenance on on a human being. Uh, so you're going to have to pay out of pocket. And the How prices much is that? the prices vary between markets. I've seen it as low as um, three hundred dollars in California. The highest one I've I've seen in the market is is in our state, Minnesota, where uh, it gets as high as twenty nine hundred dollars for a single MRI really? cash pay. So in my city, Minneapolis, we're pretty fortunate. We can do them for about $750. So you need to ask around and, uh, you know, be a bit of a business person when you, you call and say, don't, uh, don't try to make up all your, your profit in one scan. I want to, I'll be coming back to track this yeah, good idea. Uh, to make sure I'm, I'm improving. So give me a deal so that I can keep coming back and, and do this uh, multiple times. And, you know, if you think it's too much money, Ask yourself, yeah, how important is your health? I mean, really think about it. And, you know, your your body is your most important physical asset. Nothing else you have or you will ever own or ever have will have as much of an impact on the quality of life that you have as your body. So spend your money on taking care of your body. Do do spend the money on the, the MRI scan because uh, it's your highest ROI you're going to have in your life is based on your health. And your body, more than anything else, is going to define how much you will either enjoy or suffer every circumstance for the rest of your life. And I do mean suffer in some cases. People go on to contract incurable, highly debilitating disease like cancer uh, and uh, heart attacks and strokes. And, you know, our country is filled in the United States and nursing homes with stroke patients. And it's the one pathology I uh, routinely and regularly tell people I never want to have because uh, it is to me uh, lying in a nursing home in a bed wearing diapers, uh, maybe not able to understand speech or maybe not able to talk. When my family members are coming to talk to me, I can't talk to them or I can't understand when they tell me you know, we love you and I don't have no idea what they're saying. That's a miserable existence. Yeah. And uh, everybody listening today ought to have a stroke prevention plan in place where they understand exactly what they're doing uh, to minimize themselves from having that. Otherwise, you better be prepared for the potential for that pathology because it is the number one killer in the United States is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, either heart attacks and strokes. So, this isn't fear-mongering. This is reality. The conventional healthcare system is uh, not warning people about this, except they're pushing hard statin drugs. And it just is, is not a meaningful preventive plan to keep you from having it. They just give you those medicines and they're making a lot of money uh, out of uh, those uh, statin drugs, which is the largest, uh, most profitable uh, class of pharma pharmacologic uh, drugs out there in the history of humanity. And yet uh, I like to ask the question, who here has ever had a human being get started on a statin or, you know, lower their cholesterol and said, boy, you know, once I got my cholesterol under control, it changed my whole life. It not just one, not one person. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't happen. But if you go keto, you cut out carbohydrates, you go carnivore, um, you start eating healthy, you eliminate processed foods, that's when you see this life-changing mm -hmm. process happen in, in humans. 
And that's where I like to start. I mean, if we can just get people eating healthy, Ben, I think we're going to have um, far better results than big pharma or conventional health care uh, can ever compete with. And that's the undying message that I have that I'm trying to get people to start with their diets and eating healthy and then build on the success of a, of a healthy diet with other healthy lifestyle choices. Yeah, well said. I'm with you 100%. If you watch any of my videos on social media, you always see me with glasses on. And I always get the question, hey, why are you wearing those glasses? These are called blue light blocking glasses, and I wear them to protect my brain and my focus. You see, we are bombarded with stimulation, especially with junk light from your computer screen, your phone, fluorescent lights, and the brain has to filter that out. These glasses, what they do is they filter out those lights for you so your brain does not have to do the work. I equate this to having a web browser open with 100 tabs if you had 100 tabs open on your computer, that computer is going to run slow. But if you were able to eliminate 99 of those 100 tabs, and now you just have one tab open, that computer will function better. This is the same thing with your brain. So there's different types of blue light blocking glasses. There are computer glasses that you would wear during the day when working with screens and under artificial light. There are light sensitivity glasses that you would also wear during the day with screens and artificial light. And then you have the blue light blocking glasses, which I wear at night, two to three hours before I go to bed, which promotes hormone health, helps your body produce melatonin, and aids in better sleep. My go-to is from Bon Charge. They have the science to back it up. They look super cool. The glasses come in non-prescription, prescription, and reading options. Glasses for every need. Bon Charge also has other amazing products such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, EMF slash 5G protection, and 100% blackout sleep mask that I take with me when I travel all the time. The greatest thing about them, all backed up by science. They gave Keto Camp Podcast listeners a 15% off coupon code. All you need to do is head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout, no space in between, to get 15% off your entire order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code. Go check them out and let's get back to this episode. How often should we be doing those MRI scans if we're changing our lifestyle? We want to see, and I know you said it takes only a two to three days to notice a difference. So what's a realistic time frame? Yeah, great question. So typically I like to rescan my clients at about three to six months. I have some clients that will, will do it once a month. Um, I've had some clients do it every two weeks. Mm. The only downside to them is uh, time they take to do a scan, MRI scan. Uh, takes about uh, 20, 20 to 30 minutes to do it. And then the economic costs, depending on where you're at. But rather than spending your money on a fancy car, I would tell you, sell your car yeah. if you have to. Go get a cheaper car. Your car is not going to get, get you healthy. Yeah. And go get these, these MRI scans, track your visceral fat, and uh, watch what happens when improving your, your quality of life. And I think in the long run, you're going to make make up for those, those costs on those MRI scans because you're going to start becoming more healthy, performing better. And if you're an influencer, if you run a company, you have clients that you deliver services to, they'll be more inclined to follow your advice based on how well you look and how well you perform. You're just going to sell better and be a better uh, influencer 
And so your economic return is going to be higher. And so people very often shudder at the cost of uh, doing these these MRIs. And yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'm trying so hard. I want to figure out how we can do a single slice MRI instead of having to do 10 or 20 slices. Um, really just in the future, I'd like to develop a protocol just with one single slice uh, to do it faster and to do it cheaper. That's my commitment to humanity is trying to stamp out chronic disease. And I'm going to do everything I can to try to get uh, MRI scans and this fat biomarker, visceral fat, front and center into the minds of uh, people so that they can uh, track it. Because I always say nothing will improve a human being more than eliminating visceral fat. And every human being should be aware of that, but almost nobody is. Mm, I love it. <laughs> so I've never done one of these scans uh, and I just did like a Google search. I'm curious how much it costs for Florida, but here's, here's my promise. I'm going to do one for myself. Awesome. And then we could do a, maybe a follow-up where you're actually reviewing my results. Yeah, let's do it. And How then, cool the audience say your followers are going to love seeing yeah, Venezuela inside. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, selfishly, I want to do it. How, how much of this correlates to body fat percentage? I know body fat percentage is giving you total body fat percentage. It's not looking at what's visceral versus subcutaneous, but... Do you put any value on that? And if you do, what would be a good range for men to be in? Yeah, so I try to be around 12% um, body fat. I think uh, if you get below, you know, into single digits as too little body fat percentage. Uh, if you get above 20%, I think you you have too much. Uh, women have a, a higher body fat percentage. We, they tend to lay down more subcutaneous fat and in particular, more superficial subcutaneous yeah. fat. So- and that's partly because uh, the female reproductive cycle has a protective benefit to them. Their, their purpose from a species, now this is all uh, speculation, we don't know for sure, but they have historically played a very significant role in child rearing. Males tend to be, their contribution oftentimes is limited to just genetic uh, contributions to uh, the reproductive cycle and not necessarily a significant contribution to child rearing as much as, as women. So nature wants women to live longer and uh, they front load them with a better quality of life uh, until menopause. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're listening today with the onset of menopause, things dramatically change for women and for the worse. We see a dramatic uh, uptake in visceral fat. And so visceral fat starts getting deposited more in women. And the interesting thing is you can see the uh, influence of visceral fat in people's faces and women's faces change right at menopause or the worse. So if you simply go through your ancestors and take a look at their, your female ancestors, how their faces changed uh, once they hit their fifties and hit menopause, the only way to describe it, and I like to wake people up, is they become ugly, unattractive. And I use that term to alarm women so that they can be aware, because most women do not want to become unattractive and become ugly, then you're going to want to be aware of visceral fat and its likelihood of being significantly increased when you hit uh, menopause. So uh, one of my pictures, and maybe we could pull up that, is is a picture of myself that in at Sweater. the age of 48, yeah, that one there, 
So the age of 48 um, with glasses there, I have a pronounced amount of visceral fat. Now, I don't know for sure um, because at that time I didn't have an MRI scan, but we see this uh, pretty routinely in people when they come in. Um, I can see the influence of inflammation from visceral fat in their faces. Well, that's good and, news because when you walked in and saw me, you said I look healthy. <laughs> uh, you did. I was like, yeah, Ben looks good in that's real good. life. You look good on on uh, uh, in your production online, <laughs> but you know when you see somebody in real life, you get you know better uh, better appreciation of that biomarker. But literally, yeah. when I walk down a shopping mall. Um, I'm doing visceral fat calculations on people <laughs> in their faces as they're walking by. <laughs> Your reticular activating system is all about like visceral fat. This guy, yeah, this that's what I'm looking at. I'm just, you know, it's a skill set that I have. That so I if you looked at off. yourself when you were 48 years old here. And then I eliminated my visceral fat and that's my photograph um, at mm-hmm. age uh, 59 today. I'm 60, um, but- So much more healthier. Yeah. And so, yeah, when you eliminate visceral fat, it it has a dramatic influence on your appearance. And so um, we look to people who look good and perform well to give us leadership and guide us. And we have software, I call it biological software, that says we want to pay attention to these people because they can help us live better. That's why we pay attention to them. And marketing has figured this out, including Big Pharma. So if you look at Big Pharma's commercials, the person taking the drugs is chubby, heavy. uh, They look like everybody. But the person telling them, the doctor or the person, the smart person with glasses and the clipboard, the scientist about the drug, he or she is lean and more, um, you know, better looking to offer that guidance. So we really do pay attention to people based on their appearance and their, their performance. And, you know, it should be hopefully a motivation uh, for people to, to become as healthy as possible. So besides improving your quality of life, you want to be able to influence other people, help them to live better, you know, help them to hunt better. And I'm quite a bit older than you, Ben, but when I was a young child, we used to go and visit the elderly in uh, nursing homes. Now, this is just not done very much these days. And uh, nursing home, whenever the door opens up, old people turn to look to see if somebody's coming to visit them. The sad reality is uh, visits don't happen as much and or as lengthy because, um, the elderly today, I think, are so afflicted with chronic disease that young people uh, don't seek out the advice of grandparents and great-grandparents as much yeah. because biologically they are so filled with disease, those young minds are told, don't pay attention to this person, they can't help you. They have lived their life poorly. And it's not through any fault of the elderly. It is uh, The system has led us to believe of the wrong things about when it comes to being healthy. Um, But if you are the opposite, you're that grandfather or great-grandmother that is healthy, the younger generation will flock to you and want to pay attention to you. And you want to be in their life, especially your your adult children's lives or your grandkids' lives, because who's going to give better advice to your offspring than yourself. And you've accumulated a lot of that. And we are being ripped off with the accumulation of knowledge and experience uh, that is uh, uniquely available to to the elderly uh, because of chronic disease is impairing their ability to pass that on. So 
And from species standpoint, we have got to work um, within our species to get ourselves as healthy as possible so that we can continue to optimize. We have done very well, our ancestors in the past, in imparting that knowledge and helping every subsequent generation to improve and become better so that we are the definitive, you know, primal apex species that roams the earth. But our existence, our survival is very much threatened. You know, for the past, uh, I think it's been past four years, uh, life expectancy is declining for the first time in the history of humanity. Mm -hmm. And that notwithstanding the fact that we have more medical advancements. And what's not being talked about is that we have never as a species had such a high amount of chronic disease as we do today. And so you have more human beings living at this point in time than all others combined. And you have the highest amount of disease present within all these individuals. And that's a, um, I think, a very bad situation that we got ourselves in as species. And so if you're listening today, I would charge you as if you take your role in our species and part of humanity serious, that you should be electing to live the healthiest life that you can possibly live so you can do your part to make healthy choices and healthy, healthy lifestyles as attractive as possible. Yeah. Well, beautifully, beautifully said. We reached the part of the interview that I think everybody is the most excited about because it's going to be about what are, what are some tactical, practical ways to reduce belly fat, stubborn uh, weight gain, weight loss resistance. So let's start right here. Dr. Sean has done 6,000 plus, maybe close to 10,000 scans looking at visceral fat. We already established how dangerous visceral fat is to contribute to chronic disease. What are the five most common contributors to visceral fat that you've seen over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's really important to understand what are the big contributors, the really the negative influences and cut those out so you can stop what I like to say is the gasoline on the fire. Yeah. So uh, there are some things you can do uh, to reverse and do some positive things, but let's stop the negative things. So the first foremost biggest contributor of visceral fat, in my opinion, is processed foods, particularly processed carbohydrates. These simple carbohydrates, simple sugars, they go in and, and contribute very significantly to the deposition of visceral fat um, again, likely through the role of a microbiome. So some people literally could probably take cotton candy or processed foods and not have as much impact if they have a really optimized microbiome. But for the majority of people, your audience and people listening today, it is unlikely that they have an optimized microbiome that would permit that. And so processed foods is something we saw in the average uh, individual 6,000 people when it was eliminated had the most dramatic effect in improving and eliminating visceral fat. The second well, one- well, Wait, before the second one, but um, do you think it was the reduction of the processed carbs that contributed to that result or was it the reduction of the seed oils that are also in those processes? You know, that's foods? a great question and I've tried to answer that multiple times. In the study, we did not pay attention to that. It was- uh, okay. That would be round two. I'd love to have some studies and take a look at that. Because they come packaged together, right? They do. And yeah. so I think that is the difficulty is how, I think it would be an unethical study, but you know, could you have a diet where you're consuming industrialized seed oils, processed seed oils without, um, uh, uh, without carbohydrates and then adding, adding in the carbohydrates and tracking the difference and then eliminating 
the, the industrial seed oils and have a whole series of these things. But I just don't think I could, I could do that and look at somebody in their face and say, why don't we have you do yeah, these that would things? Be pretty evil. Well, it's kind of a mute, a mute point because if you remove processed foods, you're going to remove processed carbs and seed oil. So it takes care of both. I think so. Yeah. There, there's a scan there. Maybe we should pull up there. It will show a picture. It's a series of show six MRI images. And this is an, an individual who's 68 years old and he eliminated those processed carbs from his diet. And that was the only thing he did, Ben. He did not exercise one minute. And I see a big change here. And yeah, over a period of 35 weeks, he went from a dad bod, but his belly was sticking out. He had 5.6 pounds of visceral fat yeah. on, on week one. Yeah, basically when he when he got started on this um, the dad this study. Bod. We don't and then by bod. week 35, he has a cali- an, an abdomen a six pack, like a collegiate swimmer wow. at the age of 68. So, and this, you know, without doing any exercise. So we like to, I like to show all my client patients, you know, these series of scans and your audience hopefully will, will understand now <clears throat> the role um, that processed carbohydrates plays processed foods uh, with visceral fat. And that image series, in my opinion, should be in every single health class in every school, elementary school, junior high and high school and college, and for God's sakes, in medical school. So mm-hmm. uh, physicians in training and nurses, nursing schools, professional schools could understand the harmful effect processed foods have and the optimizing effect when they're, they're eliminated from the diet. So processed foods is step number one. The second one would be eliminating stress. So stress mm-hmm. in our lives has a very harmful uh, effect on uh, through the, the hormone cortisol with uh, uh, deposition and acceleration of visceral fat. So even if you are eating a healthy diet and you're exercising and you're otherwise living a healthy lifestyle, if you're experiencing stress, uh, then your body is going to, and chronically, um, your body gonna, is going to start accumulating visceral fat and uh, deep subcutaneous fat. So we would see this routinely. And so I like to tell people the analogy I give to stress in the older days would be too many lions and tigers around. There were threat for us predators. And uh, if we couldn't kill those lions and tigers, which is the, the challenge today, if you cannot solve the problems that are causing you the stress, then the answer might be migrating. You might have to migrate from an area which, i.e., means maybe uh, getting a new job, maybe changing your environment or whatever it is that's, that's caused you just got to get away from it. You can't solve the problem. You got to get away from it. But in many cases, our ancestors couldn't migrate and they couldn't kill the tigers. So what did they do? Well, an adaptive response is sprinting. So I advocate people to to do maximum intensity exercise. Uh, antelopes, another prey that are, that are stressed out by lions and tigers milling around them um, will have a stress as well, but it's mitigated when those lions and tigers attack. And so you want to have a, a stressful response, eliminating or a, a physiological response to that stress by where you counter that cortisol with some kind of maximum intensity exercise, way better to sprint than to jog. So you, you, you get a much better reduction in your cortisol and a much better lower re, uh, influence of visceral fat accumulation if you do sprinting as opposed to jogging. The third one was alcohol. So alcohol has mm-hmm. a negative contribution uh, through metabolism and its effect on the liver. 
which we see uh, accumulation of visceral fat. So I routinely ask clients if they have disappointing results in the elimination of their visceral fat if they're drinking. You know, do they have some sort of a problem with drinking or they're still drinking? The fourth one is sleep. So people who have sleep impairment or are waking up in the middle of the night or they can't sleep, they can't initiate sleep, maybe they have... Uh, mechanical noises around or aircraft or something impairing the quality of sleep uh, will accumulate elevated amounts of visceral fat as well. And the fifth one is individuals that are engaged in durational exercise. So when it comes to exercise, there is a sweet spot, uh, kind of a Goldilocks approach to exercise. Exercise as a stress hermetic uh, hormesis is a process that which does not kill you makes you stronger. So basically the enlightened human being who's trying to live uh, optimally to have the highest quality of life, who wants to have the highest level of health, uh, will leverage hormesis, a little bit of a stress, a high intensity stress for a short period of time is the preferred recommendation. And we would see uh, more benefit and the elimination of visceral fat. And when it comes to too much durational exercise, such as cycling. Now, I know a lot of people like to cycle, but if you cycle too much and for too long or distance running too much yeah. and for too long, we see uh, the accumulation of visceral fat. And probably what I would say is the resistance to the elimination of that visceral fat. So if you cut out uh, processed carbs or cut out processed foods and you're doing, you're eliminating the other things that would otherwise eliminate that visceral fat. We saw in these 6,000 people, um, basically an impedance of that visceral fat being eliminated in the face of chronic exercise. So it's one of our strongest recommendations for our clients is to make sure that they eliminate their distance running and, and cycling, cycling their durational exercise and adopt maximum intensity exercise. So I am of the opinion that the single best form of exercise throughout humanity is sprinting and that nothing kept humans in the gene pool longer and improved quality of life more than how fast a human being could run. And so that's in a sprinting situation, not how far uh, or how, how fast they could run for a very long period of time. But basically, it's the sprint that defined your ability to evade a threat and a predator and also favored uh, the ability to hunt uh, effectively. I think we, we hunted megafauna. It's the one example of an animal that we hunted uh, completely to ex extinction. And so I think we had a preference, obviously, to uh, eating large amounts of uh, meat, that it probably sprinting was more favorable than uh, uh, to hunting megafauna and uh, some sort of durational uh, exercise or skill set. So those are the five things to uh, to eliminate. Ask yourself if you have them in your life, you should be working very hard to eliminate them so you can get your your visceral fat uh, eliminated as quickly and as efficiently as possible. What a great list. That's where we start. You remove first. So number one, remove the processed carbohydrates, which are usually packaged with seed oils. Number two, master your stress. If it's uh, your environment, clean up your environment. Find If it's a job you hate, find a way to love it or find something else to do. 
Number three, alcohol, which uh, is bad news. A lot of people, I haven't had a sip of alcohol in nine, it's going to be nine years this January. Awesome. Man. That's <laughs> yeah. great. Number four is sleep, which goes hand in hand with stress, but you're right. Sleep is so critical. And number five, just stop jogging. Yeah. <laughs> stop the endurance running. Yeah. I did fasted sprints this morning, so I'm, I feel good awesome. about that. All right. So lastly, as we wrap up the conversation, those are five things to stop doing that contribute to visceral fat, belly fat, unwanted fat. What are five things that we start doing to really ramp up the burning of the visceral fat? Yeah. So one of the things I think is really beneficial to limiting visceral fat is maximum intensity exercise, sprinting. Sprinting is my favorite. I, uh, it's my favorite form of exercise. Uh, there's good science behind the messaging molecules called myokines and another one that you can Google called LACFE, L-A-C dash P-H-E, which is actually a hybrid molecule uh, combined uh, a combination of lactate and phenylalanine that are uh, connected together. And in studies looking at LACFE, that the highest amount of LACFE was generated from sprinting and the least amount in 10 forms of exercise was in distance running. Mm. And second in the list of exercise studied was weightlifting or resistance training. So uh, basically the two things that I think are, are probably the most important to the species was how fast we could sprint and how well we could fight, either in killing prey or defending ourselves against predator threats. So sprinting and resistance training are very effective to help uh, mitigate these bad fat depots, visceral fat, fat in, in uh, deep subcutaneous, your love handles, and uh, fat in your muscle and fat in your organs. And then another favorite of mine is, is fasting. So fasting mm, uh, is a wonderful practice. Uh, it's known to have uh, such benefits when it comes to autophagy. And uh, autophagy is, is worthy of, of multiple uh, podcasts, but you know at least we'll posit and suggest it. And I would recommend People Google it and fall in love with autophagy. Mm -hmm. It's a great practice. And sprint, sprinting and high intensity workouts also get you autophagy. Exactly. They do. And so the extent that you can do these multiple strategies, you, you'll have even better benefit from autophagy. So we find uh, clients that we get them in a, in a practice of extended fasting. And like you did today, of uh, sprinting in a fasted state is a wonderful thing. So I exercise uh, mostly in a fasted state. Same. And I do something I'd like, I recommend, I, I get my clients, not all of them, but a number of them, I will get started in what's called fasting and feasting, where they will fast for a long period of time and then they feast for a long period of time. And during that feasting program, I have them not doing any exercise. They're basically just eating, they're procreating, they're having sex, they're relaxing, they're recovering in the fasting state. That's when they're exercising. They're doing the saunas, they're doing cold plunges, they're doing weightlifting and, and sprinting, you know, the hard, challenging things yeah. in a fasted state. And it works ex exceedingly well. So that so you're prescribing sex for your patients. I do. Sex is a is a really <laughs> good health optimizing. Uh, measure. Yeah, so ladies, you can share, benefits. you know, or guys share this with your wife. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's popular that. with the ladies, you know, women's uh, libido improves uh, as so do men as uh, they become more optimally healthy. So yeah, of for course. Makes women sense. who lose their, um, 
their interest in libido through uh, menopause can re- recover it uh, as they eliminate their visceral fat. And it's a wonderful practice. It increases your oxytocin, mm-hmm. uh, which literally improves your health and also makes you a more effective human being. Yeah, I mean, love, it all comes- hormone. Yeah, it's, it's just a wonderful hormone. So there's, there's such great content that we've talked about. Um, and I hope uh, all these subjects become areas of uh, interest that your audience, you know, Googles and wants to read more about going to AI and, and uh, look <laughs> at what AI is coming up with and uh, a lot of this content too. And just develop an interest in, you know, optimizing your health. All these strategies really do have a tremendous benefit. And you should be excited if you're listening today because very few people really are even trying to get healthy, much less trying to get optimally healthy. So the advantage that you and I have already experienced in, in optimizing our health uh, has been so profound in our own lives, um, but it is very much available to everybody listening. And to the extent they get started on it, they get that benefit earlier than the others. And by the way, the majority of the masses, unfortunately, are circling the drain. They're just getting more and more chronic disease, becoming more burdened with it. Their quality of life is poor. And so yeah, it really becomes a differentiator within your species for those that um, the majority are getting more disease. And then the rare remnant who are optimizing their health, not just getting healthy, but really living to optimize it. You're going to stand out among your your contemporaries, among your peers, uh, the sooner and the more serious you get started on this. Mm, survival of the fittest. I have to ask this question. We have a mutual friend, Dr. Paul Saladino, oh, yeah. the carnivore MD. Yeah. I've had him smart on the show guy. a couple of times. Very smart guy. Indeed. He's, you know, uh, more of the philosophy of carbs are good for you now. Uh, he eats about 200, 300 grams of carbs a day. However, he does say that works for him. He's very active. However, the question is this. He told you to incorporate some raw honey. You had a discussion about raw honey and you yeah. you did it. You experimented. What, what did the raw honey do for you? Yeah, so... First of all, I didn't notice any improvement in terms of my energy. I didn't get a uh, uh, a benefit. I was watching for it. Um, it was tasty. It was very kind of exciting to have that that raw honey. But one of the things I noticed happened was uh, when I had got exposed to the, the raw honey. Now this was me. My restless leg syndrome. My legs started kicking. Huh. It came back in within. I would say probably a couple hours of exposure to honey. Really? Yeah. Huh. And so now I don't think Paul ever had restless leg syndrome. And I think the majority of people probably do not have it. But if you if you have that, and I, I see it very connected to uh, hyperglycemia and sugar levels and people that have probably insulin resistance and, you know, a disrupted metabolism, suboptimal metabolism. The other thing that I saw happen was my visible pulses. So... You know, I have uh, with the uh, elimination of my visceral fat, I saw the onset of my pulses became visible throughout my body. And I routinely look at them. I watch them after I sprint, after I exercise, uh, when I go out in the sunshine. Show an example to the the YouTube, because you showed that to me before we hit record. Yeah, so one example is just, and I don't know how good the camera is, but you can see this visible throb. Can you zoom into it or... Yeah. So for, for those listening, you're, we're looking at, we're looking at Sean's bicep and he has a visible pulse, meaning you could see the actual pulse. You're not, they can't, they can't hear you. Say, say it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah. 
return to the mic. Yeah, but yeah. So, what what um, did you just share? Yeah, so I that is my uh, my uh, brachial artery, but I also had in the other pointed area, my wrist, uh, your radial artery courses underneath one is superficial uh, veins. Can you move, move the yeah. yeah, superficial okay, uh, yeah. vessels in your wrist. But I've noticed the onset of uh, visible pulses within uh, a big one is just my aorta, my stomach really uh, flashes when I lay down. My stomach flashes up just laying is down. That, is this a bad thing? Uh, no, it's a good thing because it just shows massive amount of blood going through. And really what I think it it more shows just not only a massive amount of blood is the softening of my uh, my aorta, my aorta. So deposition of fat uh, happens in your, in your muscles uh, to include your skeletal muscles and your cardiac muscles. But the third type of muscle you have are smooth muscles in yeah. your arteries and veins. So- all my arteries have gotten softer. I don't have this deposition of fat in my arteries. So I have this massive course of my, my abdomen and my iliacs, um, my femorals, my popliteals, and then my dorsalis pedis and posterior tibialis. And the big one is uh, erectile functioning. So you, uh, if you're listening today, uh, a healthy erection is not just a very hard, firm erection, but really an erection that throbs. Yeah. You should have a noticeable... Uh, pulse to your erection for males. And uh, every male, I think I would say to say when they were teenager had this yeah. and this slowly goes away and we don't track it. And uh, then the only thing we really notice is when we, we can't get an erection anymore, but what you really want to have is an erection that throbs and it should be very noticeable and very pronounced. And the more it does it, uh, the better your blood flow and the less you have probably of deposition within the, the smooth muscles of your arteries and veins and your capillaries, uh, a large, large role where um, the capillaries play, where the, the, the nutrients are offloaded. So visible pulsations, I think, are really interesting yeah, I have marker a follow, for health. I have a follow-up question on that because I, I remember I, I would wake up in the middle of the night, maybe I would have my arm like over this, I would be sleeping and I would get like this visible pulsation and I'm think I would think it was a bad thing. Like is that I like, am I something wrong here? And it would like, I would actually pulsate here. And then sometimes right here, uh, like by my armpit area, but I noticed that it would happen usually Sunday nights. And the signif significance of that is that oh. Sundays is when I play two hours of fasted basketball outside outdoors. And it usually happened that night that I would go to sleep Sunday nights, not typically the other night. So what, is there a connection there? Well, there could be, I mean, if you're playing it outdoors and you're exposed to uh, sunshine, yeah. uh, then the nitric oxide production of the sun exposure and just your increased levels of testosterone that you get from one exercise and two competing. Mm. So and I do um, compete. you don't want to just go and lift weights or go play basketball by yourself. You want to race or sprint or play some kind of athletic event against somebody else. So probably the uh, trifecta of uh, testosterone and uh, nitric oxide and uh, the lacfe and myokines and uh, from exercise all came together to improve. And that's what we, uh, we see, you know, the amplitude of visible pulses uh, are enhanced and increased when you do uh, healthier things. And so uh, routinely clients, that we have a client group. My clients are all part of an online community. And uh, 
And whenever somebody starts getting visible pulses, they jump in and say, yeah, I got the visible pulses, mm-hmm. they're starting. And uh, and then so it's it's just an exciting thing to track and pay attention to. So rather than paying so much attention to your bathroom scale or your lipids, your cholesterol panel, pay attention to your body and looking for signs and indications that you're perfusing blood well, that you have healthier arteries um, because you see the onset of these visible pulses. And if you have them today, make sure you don't lose them. And so when I uh, ate that honey, uh, my pulses went, went away. And that was this, the, mm. the unfortunate thing did, uh, that did concerned you me-, me. Did you measure your visceral fat with the honey at all? Um, I did not. Okay. Um, I just did two uh, episodes about 12 days, 10 to 12 days apart from both of those. I did not bother doing an MRI at the time. And uh, if I'd stayed with honey longer, I, I probably would have done that. In fact, uh, down the road, that might be an interesting experiment to take a look yeah. at. But, you know, if you're listening today and you're, and you are going to, th- you're thinking about adding in fruit or honey uh, or milk or some other thing, you know, uh, consider doing an MRI baseline and tracking. And then I'd love to have your scans. I'm sure Ben would too. We, we would promote, you know, what would happen when you put this on and, you know, the fa- it's an end of one. The fact that either you developed visceral fat or you didn't doesn't mean that everybody else will have the same results, but at least is one experience. And I think um, I think we really need to do more studies. Uh, I am intrigued about fruits. Um, I think they are, uh, and honey, uh, they are something that are, are worthy of, uh, of being considered. But I think for the you know, a, a lot of people that have are coming from a, an overweight uh, condition or experience where maybe their metabolism is suboptimal, their microbiome is very likely compromised. They need to be very careful and cautious about adding in those carbohydrates, in my opinion, and work on restoring their metabolic health and uh, their microbiome before they do so. I've had a few clients do it and quickly abandon it even before we could even do an MRI to track it because they so quickly gained weight. Yeah. And uh, so, um, but you know, it, for those listening, I'm not slamming the practice. I'm just pointing out that every one of those people that I'm aware of always came from a background where they were formerly heavy. They had suboptimal microbiomes, suboptimal metabolisms, and that every individual that I've known that has incorporated, at least reportedly, that they successfully incorporated honey and fruit uh, into their their carnivore, you know, previously low uh, carbohydrate diet, have never had compromised periods of health. So it may just be that their microbiome is, uh, permits them to add these carbohydrates back in. And so um, I think it remains to be seen uh, in large population studies. Um, but I would end on this note with regard to that point is the only study that really matters is the N of one, what's happening in you. So, you know, even if we could successfully study a billion people and say, generally, these are the the expected results. If you uh, add in honey and fruit into your diet, previously a a zero carbohydrate diet, it may not matter because you, your microbiome may be completely different either where you can uh, add them back in and it's not a problem or in the alternative, you cannot add them back in because it is a problem or you might be somewhere in between. So uh, study yourself, follow these biomarkers. I call them key biological indicators 
uh, to help optimize your biology. And they're, they're just a fascinating way of uh, taking a more enlightened approach about uh, what's going on in your body and outside your body uh, so that you can be guided on how to better live your life. Yeah. If you want to incorporate fruit and honey and do well, just go live with Paul Saladino for like two months, get his microbes and maybe yeah. you could do it. No, but doc, last thing, I talk a lot about uh, gratitude and vitamin G, I call it. You know, I'm, I'm sure if we've done some, if we did some studies on vitamin G, it'll help with visceral fat because it helps with everything. So I want to ask you, what are you grateful for? Yeah, well, I'm grateful for my family. Um, my family is uh, such, we, we have our own little chat room and we uniformly regard our family as the greatest family in the world. <laughs> I mean, it, and so we, we just love each other and Five kids. chat all the time in our little, uh, we, uh, little chat room. And so I am uh, most grateful for my family and the life that I get to, to live with them. So uh, that is a forefront and center. And then my faith, my faith and my family are the two most important things Wonderful. in my life. I love it. Your website is drshawnomara.com. That's it. That's your YouTube. It's also your, show, your uh, Instagram, anywhere else that you want them to go. I'm also on X or Twitter. That's the same. X Twitter. Uh, same, yeah. Same handle name. there. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find in social media. And uh, if you are somebody who's listening and are very motivated and interested in seeing what's going on in your body, you can go to my website and uh, I look for people to study who are willing to uh, and able to, to cover the costs of uh, MRIs. We, we no longer have any funding, you know, for the, from the National Science Foundation to do them for free. Uh, but if you're able to and are interested in becoming a client, I'd be happy to, to consider studying you and seeing how... Uh, how you're doing in this process called life. I love it. There you go. We'll do round two where we'll uh, review my scans. And uh, thank you, doc, for coming on the show. I appreciate you. I acknowledge you and how you serve and show up. And it's a really powerful message that I think that's going to change many, many lives. So thank you. And we'll do this again very, very soon. Well, thank you, Ben. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm excited to, to do this again. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Sean O'Mara. I love him. He's amazing. If you want to watch the video version of today's interview and see that those photos we pulled up, then go to youtube.com slash ketocamp. Go follow him on his Instagram at Dr. Sean O'Mara. Go subscribe to his YouTube at Dr. Sean O'Mara. His website is drseanomara.com. And uh, share this episode with a friend, somebody you know who could get value from a conversation like this, post it on social media, tag me if you do it on Instagram, at the Benazadi. And please consider leaving the show a rating and review. I really hope you loved it. Listen to it again. Watch it on YouTube. Sean is amazing. We'll come back and do round two, where we discuss my visceral fat scan and some strategies for myself. So stay tuned for that. And if you want to learn more about working with me one-on-one -on -one for my seven-month program, click the link in the notes down below to fill out the application. Thank you. I appreciate you. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. 
Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.